So we are live from Ava Township, Illinois, and I'm here with Marika Josephson, uh, co-owner of Scratch Brewing Company. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Or me I am just here. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me traveling across Indiana and Illinois to this beautiful spot. So we are at Scratch Brewing Company and we're in the middle of a forest. I feel really serene being here. Smells like wood burning. I can tell, even though the brewery's not opener right now, I can tell lots of wood-fired products <laughs> are probably made here. All over the place. Uh, you can't go about 10 feet without running into a place where a fire burns. Ooh, <laughs> this sounds very mystical. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. And behind me, there's a garden growing, which I'm assuming you're going to tell me all about that, too, mm -hmm. how that's integrated into the beers. Yeah, I just feel very calm being here after driving four plus hours from Louisville. <laughs> so thank you. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. So how did you arrive to this middle of the woods? This is an uh, unusual place for one to, to find themselves. Um, my husband and I met in grad school in New York and we were both working on PhDs in philosophy. Mm. Um, he got into the philosophy program here, PhD program here at um, Southern Illinois University. So we moved out about 11 years ago um, so he could finish his program, and I was uh, ABD at that point. Mm. Um, so I had finished my dissertation here. Um, and in the meantime... I started homebrewing, um, which was something I'd always wanted to do. But in my tiny apartment in New York, I didn't really have the opportunity to do that. No. <laughs> um, so I loved doing that. And at the time, at the time when I moved here, there were no craft breweries. Shortly thereafter, one opened up. Um, and he did not have a like an on-site drinking area. He was just mm. a production facility. Um, but, uh, um, there was a very small group of home brewers here, craft beer drinkers and one bar nearby that everybody would gather. Cause it was really the only place to get craft beer 11 years ago. Um, I bet. yeah. Wow. So, uh, that's where I met my two friends who became business partners. Um, we were all kind of just in the right time of our lives, transition times, um, ready to tackle something new, where starting a small brewery in the woods just made the most sense in the world. <laughs> of course, a confluence of events leads this to this beautiful space. Right. Wow. Yeah. What sort of realizations were they? Um, I think it was more that, um, so I moved here, I had been working in the publishing industry actually in new york and there weren't that many opportunities to do that here um and but i knew that i also didn't want to stay in academia so i knew i was finishing my dissertation but i didn't want to continue down that path mm. um and i think i was just like in a really adventurous like time of life you know mm -hmm. having just moved out here i'd never lived in the midwest before both my parents are from the midwest mm. but um this was a very new place and it felt it honestly, I mean, a lot of people come here and feel like there's nothing here. But for me, I came and felt like, like anything could happen here. Oh, you know, I love that. Yeah, it felt very kind of open mm. to possibility. I mean, 
this is a, a, a rural area and the cost of living here is very inexpensive. I grew up in Southern California. I had just moved here from New York. And, you know, I mean, my, my rent was a third of what it was in New York for five times the space plus parking, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, that is something that's really resonating with me <laughs> yeah. on this journey. <laughs> so I could afford to work my real job a little less mm-hmm. um, and spend more time thinking about and dreaming about something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same was true for, for Aaron and Ryan. Aaron had just moved back here from Colorado where he'd spent the last like five years um, just being kind of a ski bum mm-hmm. um, and working in the airport there and traveling quite a bit. Um, and Ryan was a teacher um, of... Uh, physics and various science related things and um, always loved homebrewing and did that a whole bunch on the side so we both we all of all three of us had a lot of time to to brew and to just like jam on different ideas and I think we're just at the right point in our lives like we had we were Aaron and I are really close in age we're um he turns 40 this year Mm -hmm. and I turned 40 in March and that so that was around when we were 30 so we're just like you know had enough experience had had moved around enough to that we were like you know this feels right right now Mm. yeah wow Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing all that oh yeah (laughs) Uh, this is now knowing more about your PhD in philosophy Mm -hmm. what sort of principles from that time do you bring to the beer world well you know I love to tell humanities people and actually even especially philosophers Mm -hmm. that um you don't have to stay in academia to to utilize your your strengths of what you like have learned in school Mm. um yeah Aram's actually uh uh he has has a BA in in art and photography I love that so the two of us like don't remotely have a brewing background or even a, a chemistry or microbiology background which would serve a person well in such a field <laughs> um but we we bring different perspectives to beer making i think that makes for a really unique product in the end mm-hmm. um you know we see beer more as art um and that's the fun of it for us and i think that's what's allowed us to create something really unique definitely in addition to that for me personally um with my philosophy background um, I think I came to realize that um, there's a thoughtful way that you can run a business and oh, a not so thoughtful way. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually really important to run a business thoughtfully, you know, whether it's just um, with your employees, but also in the community that you're creating and, you know, just thinking a little bit more about for us specifically, where our ingredients come from and why we use certain ingredients and why we are maybe more tapped into a local um, market for ingredients. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the importance of that for local economy and stuff like that, especially in this place where we are, which is pretty rural. We're, you know, a couple hours from St. Louis, which is our closest big city. Um, you know, we don't have a big industrial kind of City that we are operating in and around, so we're kind of creating our own um, economy here in a way. Our own local economy. Yeah. Uh, this is what we think about every day at Curate: is how are you shifting dollars back into local economies? 
this seems like a great segue to talk about your beers mm-hmm. and the products you're sourcing to put into that bottle. Yeah. Not just what you're growing here on site, but some of those partnerships you have. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. So um, we originally, when we first opened, um, we there was no local maltster who was malting grain. Mm. Um, the closest maltster that was um, small and trying to source their grain regionally was in North Carolina. Oh, wow. And they were like the first or second maltster that was a small craft maltster um, that opened in this country, like, period. Uh, And they just so happened to be in North Carolina, which at that time felt really close and now feels really far away considering how much has grown up since then. Mm -hmm. So we were getting most of our base malt from... um, from all over from Germany and Belgium and um, like northern the northern part of the United States where most grain is grown mm-hmm. um, and then we were talking a little bit to Riverbend we got some shipments from them and I think it was probably within the f- like second or third year that we'd been open that finally a, a craft maltster opened closer to us who was really trying to source his grain as locally as possible. Wow. So we developed a really good relationship with him and uh, just a couple years ago um, we entire, we decided to entirely source all of our grain from him 100%. So, and, and actually that was kind of a big um decision to make at the time because it ruled out certain malts that he Mm. didn't make Mm. so at the time he uh with his equipment he could only make kind of simpler base malts and he couldn't make um crystal malts which kind of add like the caramel flavors or chocolate malts Mm -hmm. or roasted barley so we couldn't play around with that spectrum of flavors because we had made this commitment to only wanting to buy from him feeling like this is a more authentic um, grain that comes from this place. And he's helping to support the farmers nearby by buying their grain. So we were saying, okay, we're going to just, you know, as a business, just make this commitment um, and not make any compromises because that way at least it feeds every dollar into him. Definitely. And how far away is he? He's in, um, he's just outside of Indianapolis. So he's about four hours from us. Yeah. Um, and he's, he works with farmers kind of all around his vicinity. So some in Illinois, some in Indiana, some in Ohio, some in Kentucky, he sources as much as he possibly can. And when he's exhausted that, then he gets grain from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, someone who just drove through that entire part, there is so much land and opportunity to be, uh, yeah, not just mass produced in monocrop, but also into small to mid-sized businesses. And he's an important um, person in our kind of brewing ecosystem because he has all of the equipment to malt grain. Mm-hmm. So like a farmer, if a farmer came to us and said, um, can you use our grain? The unfortunate true answer is we can only use a small portion of it if it's not malted. Mm. So they could grow wheat and we have gotten some local wheat. We do use some local wheat. Um, but we can only use so much if it's not malted. Right. And same thing with corn or barley or anything like that. We can use a portion of it, but it has to be malted first. And we don't have the equipment or the knowledge or the time to do that as effectively as somebody who has made it their profession. 
I love discovering different parts of the supply chain process and what opportunities could emerge. Yeah. Ooh, fascinating. Yeah, for sure. So aside from this linchpin of a gentleman yeah. ecosystem, <laughs> right? then inside each of your products, you have so many different unique and interesting flavors that mm-hmm. I'm sure you've also grown or sourced locally. Right. Yeah, so apart from from the the grain and the hops that we all that we also just get from farmers in Illinois, um, we wanted to try it to grow as much of the other stuff here as we possibly could. Um, so yes, looking out on our garden here, um, we have about an acre planted here on this property. We have another acre just down the road that you drove by on your way in, oh, wow. right on the corner. Okay. And then our farmers have a couple of other spots like that they've strategically planted a few things. Hmm. Um, but yeah, all of the other um, garden-grown ingredients that grow into our beer, 99% of them come from right here on this on this property or these other properties. Mm-hmm. So that's like basil, ginger, um, apples. Um, just like looking at these trees, thinking, like, what all is that? Uh, figs. I saw one of your beers was with Chanterelle. Yeah. And then there's all the forage things, too, that we use. And that all comes from the other side of the patio that we're looking at right now, which is not the patio, but, but behind the building. Uh-huh. There's about 70 acres down there. That's um, We're on Aaron's family's land here. So that's all their land back behind us. And yeah, a hundred pounds of chanterelles somehow magically come out of the ground every year and we're able to harvest them and put them into our beer. Pounds? Yeah. The Whoa. last couple of years we've gotten a hundred pounds of chanterelle mushrooms. It's crazy. Neat. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know, we were really um excited by the idea and interested in the idea of making a beer that a beer that had a sense of place. because um, especially at the time when we first opened it felt like that um, that phrase was really reserved for wine mm. and winemaking uh-huh. that you know only wine could have terroir, and so we were kind of exploring what it would mean for beer to have terroir or what or to express a terroir to to express like what this place tastes like and smells like. Ooh, I love this, and also again going back to some of those higher level principles mm-hmm. of being of and from a place. Oven from a land. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really neat. Mm-hmm. So 2020 rolls around. <laughs> and oh, 2020, we love you. I would imagine that a vision you had maybe a year ago differs from perhaps one that you have now to five years from now. So what was emerging, you know, you were just mentioning for the past 10 years, essentially, this has been growing in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So what has emerged now at the the top of this 10 years? Yeah. Um, Yeah, we have seen this industry go through so many changes since we opened in 2013. Um, You know, we really were kind of riding that that wave in 2013 when all these new breweries were starting to come online. And, you know, we were only the second brewery to open in this area. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You know, it, it was it was just so new and novel, and we just saw that huge swing upward like everybody else did. You know, and then a couple years later, it started to plateau. And then, you know, now just in the last year or two, it started to dip back down a little bit for everyone. Mm. The shelf space is so coveted in all retail locations. 
And, you know, we've we've just we've seen all of those changes happen from, you know, being able to send out as much beer as we wanted anywhere we wanted to to, you know, seeing those orders get smaller and smaller and smaller and then, you know, more arguments over price points and stuff like that because everybody's competing over shelf space Mm -hmm. and there are a lot more and bigger breweries that are able to make more beer and discount their beer a little bit more. Um, So there's just, you know, sort of inevitable. Everybody thought that it was going to happen. It really is, has been happening for the last couple of years the larger multinationals scooping up independent breweries that too keeping that brand Mm -hmm. so a consumer may not even know that it's no longer an independent right exactly yeah yeah um and i think that the pandemic um like it has with so many other industries and especially the restaurant industry it seems um has just you know shaken all of the industries to the core and anywhere where they're were problems or um, where things weren't as strong as they seemed or where it seemed like maybe there was oversaturation in a market or something, the pandemic has just shattered all of that. And it's almost like a a, a more immediate weeding out of, you Mm -hmm. know, what may have happened in a couple years anyway is just happening, you know, a thousand times faster in real time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. So, um for us for this year you know we've seen um you know we were closed here fully from march to june we were able to sell beer to go mm-hmm. um but as you can see i mean we're really built to for an on-site experience definitely yeah and so not just this on-site experience is one of your sales channels but you do also wholesale. We do wholesale, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and that was a, a a small part of our business that had been growing over mm-hmm. the years. Um, and as as our on site experience, as as like the on site sales have had declined a little bit mm-hmm. um, because there are so many other breweries open now and so many other options. It's not just breweries too. I mean, there's a whole cocktail culture now that Definitely. didn't exist ten years ago. Right. I think um, that's something a lot of food entrepreneurs and beverage entrepreneurs uh, often forget. And let's say you're in a grocery store looking at a cold case of drinks. Someone walking up to that cold case isn't specifically like, I only want iced tea. They're probably going up there just being like, I'm thirsty. Right. <laughs> so yeah. you're like competing not just with the other iced teas, but also kombucha and water and soda, etc. Right. And so when you're looking at a town or a city and the beverage experience, mm-hmm. it's possible that you are in competition, not just with your other breweries, but mm-hmm. also, like you said, a cocktail culture. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so having seen those changes and like having seen sales dip a little bit and kind of seeing what was happening in the whole industry um, in the last couple of years, we had been cutting a little bit here and there, just knowing like, you know, um, we don't know when the kind of the downward slide is going to happen, mm. is going to stop happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to just prepare for possibly like, you know, kind of at our peak, we had like 10 employees here from uh, one person who worked full time in the brew house with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a full time farmer, we had a full time tasting room manager and then mm-hmm. like a staff of part time people that were helping on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um 
and now full time is just me, Aaron, and our one farmer. Yeah. And we had, um, and that happened before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we had already been contracting a little bit and anticipating that contraction to some degree. And then the pandemic hit and we were like, well, we're glad that we had been contracting because, you know, uh-huh. we, we are fitting right now in a way that we wouldn't have fit if we were a little more bloated. Right. Um, so that self-editing process. Right. Super important. Yeah, definitely. Um, it takes a lot of hard times because egos get in the way. For sure. Lots of pride. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which is to be self-reflective and look at a business and how it evolves over time. Right. Very one with nature here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think there is a weird way that sometimes people maybe um, their value gets a little wrapped up in the size of their business. Right. And so maybe they kind of think of their success as like the number of employees that they have or the amount of beer that they make in a year mm-hmm. or something like that. But that isn't necessarily the way to measure success, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. Like if you do allow your ego to get wrapped up in those numbers, then it could feel like a little bit of a diminishing if you go from 10 employees to five or something mm-hmm. like that. But there is a lot of value in keeping your core identity. And I think that that's what we've done well since the beginning and what we're still doing well now. Yeah. You know, and I have no problem with anybody who's making any kind of business decision for themselves and their business. Like, you know, if, if, it's, if you need to make seltzer right now, you need to make seltzer right now yeah. to get by. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're not going to make seltzer. Right. But that doesn't mean that other people can't. But that's because for me, I personally value, um, you know, some of the other things that we're doing here, the other farmers that we're trying to support here mm-hmm. with this business. Um, you know, that said, we've, we certainly have thought of um, doing things that we hadn't thought of doing. Oh, this is... Uh- <laughs> I really want to know this. I'm, my question is, what has surprised you yeah. about your adaptability in this time? Well, we definitely had um, pretty much written off the idea of ever canning a beer here. Okay. Um, because, sorry. That's okay. Oh gosh, spam risked. Uh, no. <laughs> Fortunately, editing is involved. <laughs> okay, yeah. <good. laughs> um, yeah, we had more or less written off canning here because we felt like for us opening a special bottle um that was what that was what we wanted people to feel like when they were opening up a bottle of scratch was that this is a special bottle it's bottle conditioned it's meant for aging and it's something to share with Mm. people and we felt like a bottle conveyed that sense and so we've always thought about keeping our beer in bottles um you know, even in spite of the fact that like distributors won't touch bottles right now, they only want cans, and that's because people want cans. Right. Yeah. And coming from the city, I I tend to see even other food service outlets only wanting cans because glass bottles can break, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And there's benefits to cans. They're a lot lighter. They're cheaper. Um, they do require, you know, a whole setup that we don't have here. Other types of equipment, for it's, sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, but pandemic strikes and all of a sudden we need to get a whole lot of beer into people's hands 
that was draft that was slated for draft um, into a package that they can take home. Yes. So that was when we thought about canning. Uh-huh. <laughs> and did Illinois permit of liquor off premise change in this process? It did. Um, they allowed. So the state allowed um, breweries to deliver beer uh, to customers Mm -hmm. directly. Um, And they actually codified that into law for a year, um, anticipating that this was going to last for a while. However, local um, ordinances can overrule that. So our uh, county here... um, does allow for delivery, but not for third-party delivery. So we can deliver it, our, deliver it ourselves in our cars, but like uh, Uber Eats or something like that can't deliver right. it. Yeah, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Although the state said that, that that can happen, our county said no. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, we filled as many growlers as we possibly could here. We considered the idea of getting a crowler machine or. Uh, what it would take to get some kind of canning line. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, just like getting automatic uh, paper towel dispensers, everybody had that thought. <laughs> yeah. So they disappeared off the face of the planet. <laughs> yeah. Like in a week. Oh, yeah. supply chains are <laughs> yeah. so funny. <laughs> yes, they are. Suddenly the things that become such hot commodities. Mm-hmm. And now we have a drastic can shortage. So in some ways, I'm glad that we didn't have even have the opportunity to jump on that boat mm-hmm. because then we would be screwed just like everybody else is right now who doesn't have really long-term relationships in contracts with can companies because wow. um, it's very difficult to get cans right now. Yeah. Yeah. Has this made you think more about... This is a strange word. I'm, I have a lot of feelings about this word future proofing but Mm. have you thought about in this year and knowing these adaptive strategies you've you've been thinking about in this moment are you starting to think through Ooh, if something like this were happening again or who knows what crazy thing could happen again Mm -hmm. where you might see yourselves evolving i think more than anything it has maybe retaught us about what we can do ourselves Uh uh-huh um, because really, like the business, the kind of day-to-day operations of this business business have boiled down to three of us, right? And it's it's retaught us, I guess, in a way, like you know what we did when we first opened. It was just three of us, and how resilient you are, yeah, as beings, right? Yeah, you know, we we went through an entire year here with just three people operating this business without even having one one other person as a hand on weekends mm-hmm. um, for for bar service. Um, so we've we it's almost like we closed everything up and then opened up three months later in June when we could open again and it was like we were starting all over from the beginning. Like how does this business run again mm. if there's only three people working? Mm-hmm. We had some of our, our part-time people come back for about half of their hours, and they've still been doing about half of their hours right now. Um, but we're not doing food here okay. right now, which was a big part of our weekend business. And Previously, it was 
pizzas, pizzas, hearth bread. Um, our our food menu reflected the same ethos as our beer. So all of the um, ingredients on the menu either came from our garden mm-hmm. or from local cheese and meat producers. Oh wow! Yeah, and we were the only place that was doing that kind of like locally sourced farm to table, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, food in this region. So initially when we started doing that, it was really important to us. And obviously it was important too, that like the food reflected just what our beer reflected. It all comes from the same yes. you know, concept and, and place, mm-hmm. but we're not doing that right now. And we've had a long time, I think, to kind of think about, okay, when we do open for food again, is it the same or is it different? And I think we both have this feeling like we want it to be different when it opens up. We just want to do something different with food. Yes. And we're, we're, we're going to take some time to think about what that's going to look like. I really love this and constraint. What reimagining of mm-hmm. your system because you have that core identity. Right. And because that was never wavering mm-hmm. and, it, and it hasn't been shaken up. Yeah. It's like, okay, we still have this North Star. Yeah. We still have this set of values. But that doesn't mean we can't innovate and iterate right. as the business grows. For me, the way that I felt about this from the very beginning is just stay steady. Just stay steady. Mm-hmm. Do what we're doing that people love. You know, use the bottles that people know, the labels that people know. Have trust in. That have trust in, exactly. Mm-hmm. And just stay steady. And we're still selling beer. It's not a catastrophe yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, if we just keep, like, holding on to that core, I feel confident that we'll make it through. Have you heard of the principles or theory, I'm not sure which it is, called biomimicry? Sounds familiar, but I don't think I know. It's the, I'll use another word, concept, mm-hmm. principle theory concept, uh-huh. that we can and should build businesses that mimic systems in nature. Hmm. So one example would be fungi networks underground and how they are transmitting data to different trees mm-hmm. that it does not matter if it's a pine tree or an oak tree uh-huh. and it's just creating a resilient network mm-hmm. amongst the topical topographical uh-huh. landscape uh-huh. <laughs> um anyways and how that nature is an ecosystem dependent on its different terroir and right. terrain yeah and so i'm just wondering in this next iteration knowing this really strong core identity of yours are there things that you've decided are negotiable now that were non-negotiable before in you rethinking this system that you created because it is an ecosystem here right yeah right um i don't know that's a good question i think i guess the first thing that i think about is um some of the things that we had decided that we we wouldn't do and that we were pretty like strongly um uh, i guess against doing um like canning let's mm-hmm. say those are the things that i think are negotiable right now because they're the things that will help us see it, see things through mm-hmm. see ourselves through to the other side there's definitely not anything about our core identity that i think is negotiable right um in fact, you know, you're doubling down on it. We're doubling down on it. And mm-hmm. to be honest with you, what I would say is that the doubling down on our core identity is how I've felt about 
what I want to do with this business over the last couple of years as we've seen the market get so constrained. Mm -hmm. Like we've seen some of our friends um, take their breweries in different directions that are a little bit less um, related to that core that got them started. Right. And in that commercialization, yeah, they lost that core identity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so my and Aaron, both of us, our feelings for our business have been, well, then we're like, we're only going to double down. We're going to be more vocal about what we're doing here because we think this is important. Yeah. And we're, we are only going to keep ourselves in bottles because we think that that experience and that sort of perception of the experience is really important for, Mm. for people who, who are trying our beer. Yeah. And even the onsite experience, we have felt like this is really important too, to be able to come here and have our beer in this place. You understand it in a way that you don't, if you're just pulling it out of a cooler somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything about this space makes me feel eager to drink your beer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just open one up and it's, it's, it is a space I wish anybody listening you could have a postcard of what we're looking at right now because it just feels like you've transported into a different Mm -hmm. experience yeah and we really you know that's always been um something that we've wanted to convey like from the very beginning so we have you know from initially and because we're working on such a small scale and a lot of our beer is very labor intensive we wanted more people to come here and have our beer here to have this experience. And also because we just, we just literally make more money this way, yes. you know, than distribution. I mean, we make a third on the beer For via sure. distribution than we do here. And we are working really small batches. So it, it's not a, <laughs> having a brewery, like a one and a half barrel brewery brew house is not the kind of brewery that you need if you're going to be doing distribution. Yeah. It's not a distribution model brewery. It's a this is a this is tech, this when we opened this was technically a brew pub. Mm. And there's there's a brew pub and a brew, a manufacturing brewery license in Illinois. Yeah. And so this was technically a brew pub, which is basically just an on-site drinking place. Establishment. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's something I feel a lot of consumers don't realize that when you are buying a product in a market that supplier of the product is giving up typically between 27 to 30% of their margin. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> is a cost game that is very hard to play right. unless you are hitting a certain economy of scale of sales. And so when you're buying directly from a small business, ah, it's so <clears throat> much better for everybody. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you seen any of the suppliers you work with I don't know, deploy any interesting adaptive strategies. Mm. Other small businesses in your network. Yeah, I'm trying to think. We have, um, are you you specifically kind of talking about the, like, our maltster, like people were buying stuff from? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, more than anything, or I'm thinking even just your network in general. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I think I I've thought a lot about Caleb Armaldster since um, this has all gone down because he's that the first. Well, he's the second link in the chain of getting beer to a consumer. Right. The first one's the farmer, mm-hmm. and then there's him. Then there's the brewer. 
then there may be a distributor, then there may be a retailer, and then there's a consumer. Right. And, you know, he was he was hit as hard as we were. And, you know, I mean, we had, we had, we had actually spent a weekend with him and his family a month before the pandemic struck. We were doing a special brew day um, uh, in his, uh, he created this thing called a Seinhus. It's a Norwegian style malt house and it's all wood fired. What? In a very traditional way. It's really cool. Where is this? I must go. You have to go. It, if it's on your way back, you should stop. <laughs> I'll just come out again. Yeah. Okay. Um, Do they have a sauna? You could take a sauna in that thing. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And we kind of did that one frigid, frigid weekend in February. Um, and some friends from a couple other breweries came out and joined us. And we had a, a beautiful weekend there. Um, and, you know, spent the whole weekend with him and his family. I mean, they, you know they fed us for the weekend. We all gathered together in ways that we can't do anymore. And, you know, I consider Caleb and his wife, like a good, good friends of ours. Yeah. They come out here. They, they literally, you know, put our grain into a box truck and drive it out here, oh. you know, and they've come out for a number of our events and we almost traveled together last year. I wish we could have, but you know, to see our business go through that craziness from March to June and knowing that I can't buy grain from him means that, and neither is anybody else, Right. you know, that he's going through the same thing we are. And Aaron and I both felt like as soon as this is over, the first thing that we're going to do is buy grain. We just, just, just to support him. Yeah. The cascading effect. Yeah. Wow. Um, and there was nothing, I mean, we were all just kind of in the same boat, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I think it hits you harder when those networks are a little bit more personal. Absolutely. You know, it's not like I can't buy grain from Brees or something. It's like, well, I don't know. Surely there are a lot of other big accounts that are keeping them going right now. Sometimes I wonder, perhaps you can shed light on this mm-hmm. from a philosophical perspective, but I, I wonder if in part the reason why business has evolved into just being transactional and not as relational is because the powers that be who are often wielding lots of money and power Mm -hmm. want it to be devoid of emotion. Mm -hmm. And therefore when shit hits the fan, it doesn't hurt again, that ego or you feel maybe less again, connected to your suppliers. Mm -hmm. And so you can make these tough calls out of efficiency and productivity and it's faceless. Yeah. I personally don't want to live in a world that like optimizes for that yeah. at all. Right. Which is why I've been so enjoying meeting individuals like yourself who are mm-hmm. clearly doubling down on the opposite route. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, for us, um, all of, you know, every every chain in our network has a face. And even if it's our bars, too. And I can say that about Illinois because we self-distribute in Illinois. That's mm-hmm. another thing that we've held on to from the very beginning. Maybe that's negotiable now because maybe it has to be. I don't, at least in Illinois, I don't, I don't see us really changing, though, with that. And one great thing about having control over our distribution here is that when, when the shit hit the fan in March, um, we didn't have to struggle to convince a distributor to pick up our beer to sell it to someone else. Right. 
which we did, which we were kind of in the middle of doing in other states. Mm. And we were like, all right, you don't want this right now. That's fine. We'll lay off. But we called <laughs> every retailer that we could, mm-hmm. you know, within 50 miles wow. of us here. And we actually had never distributed bottled beer around here before because it's always been important for us to have people come here, as I was saying before. Yeah. But since we couldn't have people come here at that time, um, we thought, well, the only way we can get through this is if somebody else can pick up this beer and sell it where their business is going gangbusters right now. Totally. So we called everybody, lots of people we knew, some people we didn't, but mm-hmm. all the retailers that we, that we knew in this area. And every single one said, yeah, I'll take it. Amazing. And I, I, I really, truly believe that if we had had to do that through a middleman, it would have been a lot harder mm. to to break in right at that moment when the distributors were really busy trying to make keep those connections with the retailers. The retailers were going nuts. Like yeah. it was the only place where there was actual sales happening uh-huh. and they were all just like overwhelmed. They everybody was saying it's fourth of July every single day, you right. know. Their year over year projections are just gonna be nuts oh my gosh. years to come. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I I really feel like, you know, the fact that we, you know, could have that face-to-face interaction with retailers because we could self-distribute in this state was a real benefit um, that I didn't even really understand until this moment. Mm. Yeah, and I want to I do want to be able to keep that as long as we possibly can. Maybe we can't, but it's a it's a it's a good thing. It's a good you know, thing to have in your pocket, yeah. you know, during these kinds of situations. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, as you know, I'm from D.C., mm-hmm. and it seems that this network of yours definitely is super strong within this hour, two-hour radius here, but you are someone who is very well known even in the D.C. beer community. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how have you established even within the craft beer world, um, how have you seen some of these cross-continental partnerships help or things like that? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I think every little bit helps. And I think that in as much as Aaron and I wanted to create a beer that had a sense of place, and that place was this place, we also felt like we were creating world-class beer that um, was unique. It was, it was a a unique and interesting concept that was worthy of anybody's attention and that the quality was as good as anything that you could get in any other part of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and unfortunately too, and like in some parts of the world where you would hope that this is just the ethos, it was once upon a time, but it's really not anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're kind of capturing, um, you know, I think we're capturing an ethos that, um, that beer was made from once upon a time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, we have, we have definitely relished in, in being able to, to take our beer to other parts of the country and other parts of the world, to be able to connect with other like-minded brewers, to learn from them, um, to showcase our beer in some of the bigger um, spaces, you know, with people who have given us good critical feedback. I mean, that's been invaluable as well. Yeah. You know, for, for us personally, but you know, also for our brand and growing our brand a little bit. Definitely. I always find peer to peer networks 
are so important because mm-hmm. it's not some outside certification body or consumer just telling you, change this, do that, blah, blah, blah. Right. But that peer-to-peer is giving you really thoughtful and intentional feedback. Right. So for all of the beer enthusiasts listening <laughs> or just anybody who wants to get on the train of, I don't know, building a business that is actually mindful thoughtful, mm-hmm. <laughs> intentional, uh-huh. how can folks find you? Uh, Where on the internet? You can find us at scratchbeer.com. Uh-huh. That's our website. Um, you can come visit us in oh. Ava, Illinois. Amazing. <laughs> We're just a short two-hour drive from St. Louis. Perfect. <laughs> and on Instagram. And on Instagram, yes. Aaron is actually very active on Instagram. And as I think I said before, he was a, uh, he got his degree in photography. Um, and it's kind of his photography outlet right now. So he takes some really beautiful pictures of his many, many goings on about, about Southern Illinois. If it's Even if it's not here at the brewery, it could be working on his cabin or finding arrowheads in the Mississippi River. I definitely recommend checking out our Instagram page. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me. That was my pleasure. Uh, can't wait to just experience this gorgeous day a bit more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Did you know that the tidbit is derived from a bi-weekly newsletter that we send out at Curate? In it, we discuss what we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to, and learning. Five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. Head over to curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E dot co to sign up. Also, we would love if more listeners like you could find out about the tidbit. Our mission at Curate includes the sharing of education and access to resources. And the best way to reach more folks like you is to leave a review on iTunes. Seriously, head over and let us know what tidbit of knowledge resonated with you. Until next time, remember to scale thoughtfully and source locally.